0: Welcome to the Together PDX Podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey, welcome back to the Together PDX Podcast. I have a great episode for you today. This is Simon Ponsenby's second talk from his January 2024 gospel gathering. If you haven't heard his first talk on the fear of God, I highly recommend backing up an episode and starting there. In this episode, Simon challenges us all in our deep personal love of our Savior Jesus. Enjoy this talk titled The Love of Christ.
1: My uh friend and colleague said I was at 0.8% of my speed, he thought. So I must have been speaking through water, but we're going to speed up a bit here, you know. If you've got a Bible, please turn to John 21. And uh, I want to share in this session together about what I think is the the foundation of our relationship with the Lord. John 21, and uh, where shall we start? Well, let's just start at verse 1, shall we? John 21, 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And it happened this way, Simon Peter Thomas called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Peter was a rubbish, rubbish fisherman. We... (laughs) No wonder he had to get another job because we see him twice fishing and both times he catches nothing. Anyway, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. I love that. They don't go looking for him. He comes and finds them. And But the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. And Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Nope, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. And there's a whole sermon, often we're fishing on the wrong side, we need to find the right side, and and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. I think when we minister in the fear of the Lord, uh, uh, we will find ourselves fishing on the right side. Right? Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, It's the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. I've always thought that was a bit odd. Why get dressed to jump in the water? But he gets his kit on, jumps in the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. and Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, You dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against the Lord at the supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus said, none of your business. Okay. Well, I'd like to say a prayer. This is a a prayer that I found by a friend of mine called David White. He'd written it in his journal And he died of COVID about 18 months ago. He was my best friend. He was a beautiful man. He knew the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord and uh, died of COVID at 63. But he wrote this in his journal. And I like to pray it. I want to lose my heart to Christ day after day after day. I figure I was created to be engrossed by him. I reckon he wants me to be enamoured and thrilled by him, who he is no less than what he does. What would it be like to be utterly enthralled by the immensities of his character, or enraptured by his ways? I want to be excited by Christ and held in worshipful awe before his face. I want to be astounded and absorbed by the depths of wisdom and the love that I find in him. I want to be agog at his work in my life. I want to be staggered at all the ways he leads me. And still I want more of him. And still there is more for him, of him for me to know and more of him for me to enjoy and more to contemplate and even What a thought more to become like. So we bless you, Lord. We pray you'd open your word to us. You'd draw near to us by your spirit. You would present Jesus to us, Lord. And you'd help me not to be too foggy. Amen. When I was uh, a theological cemetery training for the monastery, my very first assignment was to write a, a detailed exegesis on this passage. Uh, that was a joke, by the way, cemetery, not seminary. I know you thought maybe he's just jet-lagged. I am, but that actually was really funny. And in England, in England, they would allow. Now, this was the very first essay I, I had to write when I was uh, doing my uh, seminary training. And we had to pay particular attention to the kind of um, technical subtleties of the Greek text. And uh, in particular, look at the subtle differentiations between the sheep and the lamb. And there were two different words for no, and two a word for feeding, a word for tending. And of course, and we've all preached endless sermons on it, between the two different word groups you employed and translated generally as love. And I think that I got so bogged down in the details of it that I missed the point. I'm sure I didn't get a very good mark. But my wise old Greek tutor, she was called Margaret Embry, she was about four foot five and absolutely terrifying, and she'd just point a stick at you and say, translate, (laughs) and uh, you'd have a panic attack and you'd sound like an idiot. But I think by setting this as a passage... For us as our very first assignment, she was wanting us to understand not just how to parse the Greek, but she was wanting us to understand the very essence of Christian leadership and Christian discipleship. And I think that's what we find here. I know you know all this stuff as pastors and teach it, but I'm just reminding you. (laughs) And I want to look at this passage by just, uh, two questions to sort of frame and to hang my reflections on. And the first is the obvious one. Do you love Jesus? It's possible to be in ministry for decades and not love him. It's very common to begin in ministry because we love him but to find that the church knocks that love for him out of us it's very possible for us in ministry to have our love for him grow cold in this passage the resurrected Jesus is confronting Peter's denial I think it's not insignificant that it talks here about there being a a fire of burning coals. The only other time we get reference to this in the Gospels is the point at which, of course, Peter denies Jesus, stood warming himself at a burning coal fire, and so on. Peter has denied Jesus three times. And Jesus is giving Peter The opportunity to repent, to recant, to undo, to erase, to go back on and to put right, to nullify, to cancel those denials of Jesus. And he's doing this because Jesus wants forgiveness and not failure to be the mark of Peter's future. He's going to be marked by grace not by failure and shame. And Jesus could have started all over again. He could easily have found another leader to raise up to take the place of Peter amongst the 12. But the wonderful thing is about our Lord is he'd rather restore than remove and replace. He is the God who always is seeking to restore. I was speaking at a conference in England, and just before I went on to preach, I went to the—I the, hope you don't mind. This is a little bit near the mark, but I went to the loo, and it was number two. <laughs> and uh, I had just—I had just finished when my signet ring fell off into the toilet. I know, yeah. And I kind of, I got up and I thought, now what am I going to do? And I looked and I couldn't see it nestling carefully there to be picked up. So I thought, what's the options? I, I thought I can flush it away and get the insurance, and we'd better get another one. Or uh, I can go in after it. And the thing was that my, my wife had bought it for me when I became a priest, or in the Church of England. Ordained as priests and a priest of all believers, I believe in it um, <laughs> but it was important to me, and I just couldn 't flush it away and so in I went and worked around and finally came across <laughs> something hard and shiny and out anyway i then i mean i 'm at a conference, I got out, and I Walked out and I've got this hand man I'm walking out like this and there's like twenty vineyard pastors all staring up my God you know and uh, you know sort things out but as I as I walked out the Lord spoke to me and said you know he'd made me like a signet ring and placed me over his heart the Lord Could have flushed Peter away. But the Lord treasured him. The Lord loved him. The Lord had invested in him. The Lord knew him. The Lord knew he was going to deny him. He told him so up front. And the Lord didn't just flush. The Lord restored. Three times Peter denies Jesus. And three times Peter is asked a question. And Jesus solicits a response in order to restore. You'll know that in Hebrew idiom, if you repeat something three times, it's like saying something definitively, holy, 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 and so on. The threefold iteration is kind of perfection. So when Peter denies Jesus three times, he is denying him utterly, completely, unequivocally. It couldn't get any worse than that. And three times Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And each time as Peter responds, it's as if the shadow or the stake that comes on his soul through that denial is removed. Maybe someone here has really messed up. Maybe you've messed up really badly three times. You might even be here with a bunch of ministers and yet feeling like an imposter, a fraud and full of shame and you think it's all over for you. But we're the people of grace, of forgiveness and of restoration. Peter replies with a lesser love you'll know that jesus asked this question and uh, the word that is used here in the greek of course jesus would have spoken hebrew or aramaic but the word here in greek and i think that that's inspired by john to reflect the sense of what was going on and the word choice that jesus will have had jesus asks this question do you love me with this agape love and peter responds with this lesser love of course he doesn't love him with that love Agape love is the love that Jesus shows. Agape love is the love that lays itself down for its friend. That's the highest exemplary form of love. And Peter clearly, patently, self-evidently doesn't love like that. He's denied Jesus three times. So he says, he responds with this lesser love. You know I don't love you like that. Of course I don't love you like that. I don't love you in the way you love me. I I can only bring this to you, this brotherly love, out a kind of family, familial love. And Jesus says, that'll do and I'll take whatever we can get. And then commissions him and gives him a responsibility and a ministry. And then Jesus asks him again with this high love, do you love me with this agape? Peter responds with this lesser love. And again, Jesus commissions him. And then the third time, Jesus drops it down. Do you even love me like that? And it says there that Peter was hurt because he, the penny dropped at the third and he gets it. And he realized what's happening. He says, you know. You know that I do. I don't love you like you love me. I don't love you like you're deserved. But I do love you, even though I'm messed up. Jesus says that'll do and commissions him again and then warns him of the death that he will endure, which will be proof that he had attained that agape love come the end one of the world's great gurus of church growth suggests that there are key axioms for leadership and many of them are very helpful and i agree with them but one of them was this reward high performers and remove underperformers And that may seem a very reasonable, respectful, pragmatically useful principle for managing your church team. I'm sure it works in industry and so on. We want a good return on our investment on our staff and so on. But Jesus seems to do the opposite. And he's rewarding an underperformer. And he's given him the top job, as it were. Peter denies Jesus three times. He's not only given another chance, he's not only forgiven, he's made the head of the church. I mean, what, what is that? I mean, that is what grace is. And if we're to understand Christ, we need to understand grace. You know, last year in our church, last autumn, we, we were a church in city center of Oxford and, uh, we have a sort of a thriving by the grace of God student ministry. And three Sundays running, we had three girls, all called Grace. Only one of them had any religious background whatsoever, but had given it up coming to university. Three of them just came, one miraculously, one bought by a friend, and one final year at university thought she should try church again. Grace, Grace, Grace. And they all came to church. And came to Christ uh, on that visit, heard the gospel and made a commitment, grace, grace, grace. And that's what we see here, three graces. And that's at the heart of our faith. It's the heart of our experience of God and it should be at the heart of our expression of him in our ministry. Love covers a multitude of sins our love for him, and of course, his love for us. And here's the thing. The call to leadership, the call to apostleship, is first and foremost a call into a relationship built around love. Jesus doesn't go to hell and back to make us slaves. His love redeems us to be lovers. There's a wonderful theologian of a different generation called Leon, an older generation, Leon Morris. He says this, Loving Jesus is the fundamental qualification for service. Other qualities may be desirable, but love is indispensable. In the process of going forward to be ordained the church of england puts you through uh, various hoops you have to go for various interviews to see if you're acceptable then you go away for a weekend and you have you know various tests and 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 that psychometric test psychoanalysis, analysis all of this stuff and then they decide if you're fit to be a priest in the church of england anyway they thought up front i wasn't and they they may well have been right, and, um, you know, I had no formal education, I dropped out of school as a teenager, flunked school, joined the army, got invalided out of the army, and then became a butcher, and I was just, I was in the meat trade, and loved it, um, I think that is a priestly vocation, all the Levites were butchers in the Old Testament, but I didn't know that then, and, um, so when I was going forward for this testing, a discernment process, they really, they really didn't know what to do with me. So they'd asked me all these questions to try and understand if I was going to fit in the kind of culture where if I had the right kind of psychological or emotional sort of profile to manage the job, and if I was intellectually up to it, and all of this and that. Numerous interviews, numerous tests. No one asks me, do you love Jesus? It seems to me that's the most important thing. Every interview I do, we often are interviewing in our church for different roles and things. I ask people, do you love Jesus? Because that's where the rubber hits the road. And quite honestly, if you don't, you shouldn't be in ministry. Although far better is to actually go to Jesus and say, help me to love you. Renew my first affection for you. Basilia Schlink, who ran a wonderful ministry uh, in post-war Germany, and they were in various other countries, she wrote this, If love for Jesus is not burning in one's heart, there is no power in one's ministry, and it bears no fruit. Our ministry is not to be led on the basis of our personality or even our Gifting, underpinning everything is his love for us and our love for him. And I believe the most effective minister, the most effective disciple, the most attractive one is not the most educated and not the most gifted, but the one who is most in love with Jesus. You know, in the Welsh Revival, we We all know about Evan Roberts, and he was one of the the great leaders that God raised up to 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 pioneer that and through a remarkable year of consecration and prayer, he built a fire but do you know where the fire fell? It fell in a meeting when a girl called Florrie Evans, who was fourteen, went up to the pastor and said, can I speak to the church? I mean, you know, we might be familiar with that sort of thing these days. That was unknown back in the day in the valleys, in the Baptist chapel. Can I address the church? And this pastor took a risk, but he understood there was something special about her at that moment. And she stood up, and she just said this, I love Jesus with all my heart. And at that moment, the Spirit of God fell like Pentecost on that church. It was the first night, the first church, the first flame, as it were, that then became the Welsh Revival. And the Welsh Revival then, of course, jumps and influences East Africa and so on. Thousands, hundreds of thousands are saved but this young lady's consecration to the Lord somehow is a context. It is a fire it is a fire that then spreads. And so often in ministry, I don't know about you, I've been in ministry now, you know, thirty five years or whatever, and one can get so caught up in plans and programs and It's important. I'm not negating these whatsoever. Personalities and training and equipment and all these things that we can, which can all be good in and of themselves, but we miss something vital, the core, and that being the love of Jesus. Why bother? Why? You could earn more money doing something else. Why bother being in ministry if you don't do it because you love him? In Donald Miller's spiritual journal, Blue Like Jazz, a great book, he tells of a friend of his called Alan. I don't know if it was Alan Hirsch, but he tells of his friend who went around visiting successful churches and interviewing their leaders and uh, Alan traveled across America visiting all these pastors and finding out what they were doing and what motivated them and then he says this: he visited Bill Bright who was one of, as you know one of the most influential Christian leaders in the 20th century and founder of Campus Crusade putting out 25,000 missionaries uh, into 200 countries and so on and so on and he says Alan went into Bill Bright's office and he said it was a big office And he says, and there was a big desk. And behind the big desk was a big man. And he sat down and he asked him this question. He says, what does Jesus mean to you? And Bill Bright burst out crying. He couldn't answer, but his tears said everything. And Miller writes, when Alan told me this story, I wondered what it was like to love Jesus that way and to cry at the very mention of the name Jesus. And I knew then I would like to know Jesus like that. And me too. And Jesus wants us to know him like that. Simon, do you love me? The first commandment is not a prohibition. It's about affection. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength. Luther said, if loving God is the greatest commandment, then the greatest transgression is not loving him. And Peter did love the Lord with this filial love and that love would grow. That love would grow to the extent that he would end up laying down his life for his Lord. And when push came to shove, previously he denies Jesus three times, but ultimately he will die for Jesus. And because he loved Jesus so much, he said, I'm not worthy to even die in the same position as him turned the cross upside down, and they crucified him that way. Simon, do you love me? Now, I'm called Simon, so when I read that, I kind of have an immediate kind of arrest. It's as if the Lord is speaking directly to me. I I, I find myself powerfully engaged there. I don't like it earlier on where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to test you as wheat. But I pray for you. I don't like that verse at all. But this one, Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. I said, yeah. And so it's easy for me to put my name there because my name is there. But we've got to put our name in the text. And we've got to allow the text to ask us that question. For the Lord to ask that question. John, do you love me? Kevin, do you love me? Anna, do you love me? Jodie, do you love me? Susan, do you love me? That's what it's all about. We shouldn't be in ministry if we don't. Or at least we should get to the place where we do. I mentioned earlier that I've been married 35 years and what a blessed man I have. I have been in those 35 years. But, you know, even in the best of marriages, and my marriage is wonderful because I have an amazing long-suffering wife, but, you know, love can grow cold. Pressures come. Exigencies come. Cold winds come. The just burden of doing life can tear you apart and just cause things to grow cold. Love can grow cold. And that can happen even in ministry. And the question for us is, was there ever a time, was there ever a time in your ministry when you loved Jesus more? Was there ever a time when he was nearer and dearer to you? Was there ever a time when you couldn't wait to wake up in the morning to just be with him, and to hang out with him? Was there ever a time when he just seemed closer? And just his words were sweet to you and they just fueled your life. You just were, as it were, going through the duty of ministry because you couldn't help but talk about the one that you loved, that your ministry was the overflow of love. And that's how the Lord, I believe, wants it to be. And so maybe today we need to, if that is the case, just come back and say, Lord, somehow, somehow in the trenches, somehow in the battle, somehow with all the sheep bite, I've just lost you somewhere. And I want you to renew my affection for you. And you can do it in an instant. Secondly, I've only got two points, so they're questions. Do you know that Jesus loves you? You see, our love for Jesus is a response to his first love for us. That's what Saint John says in one John four. We love him because he first loved us. Again, Kierkegaard, who I really like, miserable Danish prophetic. (laughs) You know, he was so doer, but I just find in his journals there's He says this God loves us first. If I rise at dawn, the very second my soul awakens and turns to you in prayer, you've already beat me to it. It's a modern translation. He says, you have already turned to me in love. Isn't that great? We love him because he first loved us. I can't wait to preach at this conference uh, in the next couple of days because I've been asked to preach on the love of God. Well what better what better subject is there? What better theme is there? The love of God. And He loved us first. He saw us from afar and He loved us. He carried us in His nail pierced hands and in His torn heart. We were that in the tears in His eyes when He dies at Calvary because He loves us. Before we were conceived, He loved us. I'm going to tell this to me, but my dad the other day sent me. My dad's getting really old, and he's he's a bit jet lagged. He's sort of and he's gone senile, and often his words are wrong. And he wrote to me, and he just said, "Son, you were God's gift to us from the moment you were conceived, and I remember it well." <laughs> I thought, I thought. No, dad, it's no, born, born. (laughs) I thought, what? Uh, And I was thinking about it, just honestly, I thought, thought, do I write back and say, dad? But I didn't. And God said, Simon, I loved you long before you were conceived. Why, why, why do we exist? Because there was a place in the heart of God for us from all eternity. And out of the overflow of the love of God, he creates a place in time and space. He rolls out a red carpet of love. He creates a paradise. And he puts in there people made in his image. Why are they made in his image? So he can love them and they can love him back. And in love he gives us freedom, and in our freedom we reject his love and become self-willing, and sin enters the world, and they're expelled from the garden, but God comes with them out of the garden. And then he chases us through the corridors of history. All its avenues and alleyways, God, by his spirit, moving and pursuing us in love to bring us back to the garden. The Bible starts with paradise and ends with paradise, and the whole narrative is God's pursuing love for us. What a wonderful thing. But many of us don't know it. We can preach it, but do we know it? The artist Charlie Mackesy, I know a little, we correspond a bit. He said this to me. Love was the only thing that made sense. When he became a Christian at the age of 20, he got converted by a vision in Battersea Park in London. Love made sense. I didn't really see beauty until then. He was never formally trained as an artist. But after he met Jesus, filled with the love of Jesus, he began to see the world differently and draw it. And he's become an Oscar winning artist and so on. God is love. and Love is the presupposition of all our propositions about him. And he loves us. He loved me. And he loves you. And Uh, His love for us is not predicated on our performance. His love is always a priori. Anyway, let's get to the text. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who'd leaned back against Jesus at the Last Supper and said, Lord, who's going to betray you? The disciple whom Jesus loved. I've often been... an troubled by that phrase. For many years I was. It occurs six times in John's Gospel, and most scholars think John is writing about himself. So this is a description of the author John about himself, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I've got to be honest, it did something in my spirit. I think reading it, it touched a place where I did feel insecure. I did feel inadequate and inferior and struggle with rejection and self-projection and fear of rejection and that kind of unhealthy emotional cocktail. So when I would read this, the disciple whom Jesus loved, something would tense. I knew in theory that Jesus loved me. Greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends and all of that. I knew that, but I wondered if he could love me more. And if so, what did I have to do to qualify? And I felt that when John spoke about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it kind of implied favoritism. And that John had a special relationship with him. And that John was, as it were, invited to lean on Jesus. I wouldn't have dared. I'd have taken the end seat, you know what I mean? But he pushed his way to the front and lent on him. And I was already in ministry. And yet these verses, this sense, this gnawing in my soul was there. I think, you know, the devil would whisper, you don't love you. Just look at what you've done. Look at those you've hurt. Look at how you've let him down. You're just a loser from the West Country, man. These sort of narratives would go around my head. And I would wonder if by spending longer in my quiet times or working harder at faith sharing or giving more of my uh, income, that somehow I would impress God and improve my standing with him. And then one day... I was reading this passage. I can remember exactly where I was in my home at that time and, and the moment and I'm reading it. And again, something just closed. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Oh, I, would, you know, and the Lord spoke to me one of the few times. I'm not a very good charismatic, but he spoke to me and he said, Simon, I don't love John any more than I love you. The difference is he knows it. And then the Lord said, this title is not arrogance, it's assurance. And I said, Lord, if that's you, you're going to have to prove it from the Bible. (laughs) Immediately the Lord said, look at one John. And I turned to one John and there five times John uses for them, the whole church, the plural form of the title that he uses for himself here. They are a, the agape toy, the much-loved ones. I think I was living as someone who lived with the love of Jesus in terms of phile, phileo. But I needed to experience this agape love. Interestingly, in the NIV, the not infallible version, they translate, they translated as dear friends, which would be philatoi, not agapeitoi. John knew that he was loved. He didn't lean on Jesus's breast because he was the favorite. He leant there because he wanted to. The others could have come, but he, he wanted to be there. Others held back. He pushed in. And he knew that he was welcome. And he was secure in the love that Jesus had for him. Why is John here Following Peter. I've always, you know, thought it's really interesting. Jesus is doing soul surgery on Peter. They're on a beach. I've celebrated communion on the supposed beach where this all took place in Galilee. What a thing. And John is following behind. Why? Is he a nosy parker? I mean, if I was Peter, I'd turn around and say, step off. Between me and the Lord. You got a problem with that? And, you know, but no, Peter's there. Why? Because Peter's all, because John's there. Why? Because John is always wanting to be close. He's not going to let Jesus get out of his sights. He's not going to let Jesus and Peter just have a tryst without him. He, he wants to be near him. The first one leaning is the last one standing. Peter denies denies Jesus. John stood at the foot of the cross. Why? He's the first one leaning at the Last Supper and he's the last one standing. And the Lord Jesus says to him, John, this is your mom. And to his mother Mary, it's your son. He loves us. We need to minister from this knowledge that we are infinitely loved. We're loved at the greatest of costs. Love lies bleeding. How do we know he loves us? Well, we know objectively because he dies for us at Calvary. God demonstrated his love in this, that while we were yet sinners Christ, died for us we know it the cross tells us he loves us in the wood and the iron and the blood and the death we know that we are loved there is something objective there in his embrace as he opens wide his arms he's embracing the world in love we know he loves us and we need a revelation again of that heart of our faith one of my best chums has uh, served for 17 years with the British Special Forces, the SAS, and told me the story how his former troop were involved in the liberation of some British military peacekeepers who were held um, by terrorists in Sierra Leone. And he says the SAS uh, came in in the helicopters. They came up the river on a boat. and Down they went, and as they went down, uh, they then went in, they they knew where the, the prisoners were being held, the hostages. And uh, they got to them. And they blew off the lock on the door. All the lights, all the noise, it was a bit chaotic and traumatic and shocking for the prisoners. And the SAS trooper says, we are here to save you, but you must come with us now. And they got up and were led out and they were led out to the... Chinook helicopter as they were doing one of the guys one of the troopers who'd come to rescue them was shot and he was dead before he hit the ground a large capacity round and they put him on the Chinook with those hostages and uh, you'll know that when the the double rotors when they lift up uh, they lift up at an angle the dead man was here all the hostages were at the lower part of the helicopter and the man, dead man's blood just ran, surrounded all their feet. And my friend said, they knew the price of their freedoms. They're in red, stained in red. We know the cost of our freedom. We know the breadth and extent of his love. We see it at... Calvary and at Calvary we see that God loved us more than himself and we see that God couldn't entertain the thought of eternity without us in his life and that he was prepared to go to hell and back to bring us back to be with him. This is not something we simply proclaim and we represent in the Eucharist. This is something we're to experience and live by the foundation of our being and our ministry. And how can we do that? The objectivity of his love that we see displayed for all outside the city walls, there at Golgotha, the place of the skull where Christ enters into hell for us, there, the knowledge of that and the benefit of that And the presupposition of that is made known to us by his spirit. We can say objectively, there, historically, geographically, chronologically, we know he loves us, but that becomes subjective in us when we say yes to that. And the spirit of God sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts. That's what it says in Romans. The church in Ephesus, they knew the, the truth of the love of God and they'd already experienced something of the seal of the Spirit and yet Paul is at pains to pray for them that they would experience personally the height and breadth and length and depth and to know this love that surpasses knowing, what a funny verse that is. To know something you can't know, you wrote that in an essay in Oxford, you'd fail. To know what you can't know, but there is a knowing beyond knowing. And it comes by the Spirit. And it's not just the truth that we read or systematize or write out in proposition. One that we experience. That we are loved. We're loved. We're loved. And that's the basis for our ministry. We love him because he first loves us. Amen. Well, let's pray. And then are we having lunch? Well, we'll pray, we'll have lunch. And after lunch, we're going to worship some more. I've said enough, but I'm going to have to talk again. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. We're going to worship. We're going to get into the word a bit more. I'm going to have a runny nose some more. And then we're going to have a a time of just bringing ourselves before the Lord and asking him to make real these things to us by his spirit. So, Lord, thank you. Lord, what an extraordinary thing it is. Who's ever heard of a God who loves sinners? And yet you love us and you reach out to us and you rescue us and you redeem us and you adopt us. And you seat us with you in heavenly realms. And you give us a great inheritance. And all because you love us in your son. And we pray, Lord, I pray for these dear saints here in ministry. I pray that you would renew their experience of your love for them. And that they would reciprocate by loving you more. Where they've been hurt, Lord, by ministry where they've been wounded, where they've, as it were, become hardened in order to try and protect themselves from the cost of it all, I pray, Holy Spirit, you'd come upon them. You'd shed your love into their hearts and that you'd fill their mind with the knowledge of your love for them and they'd return to their churches and their ministries in that love the love for you, your love for them, and that that love would spill out into loving their people and their communities. And we bless you, Lord. Amen.
0: Thanks again for listening to the Together PDX podcast. We have one more talk for you from Simon Ponsonby. He'll be rounding out the Trinity with a talk called The Power of the Spirit. That episode is available right now, and it's less than a half hour long. So just go ahead and check it out right now.